Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think what we have found is that, that the, the benefits of connection and the hazards of loneliness and disconnection are so powerful that the reason why we're excited about it is we feel like we really want to bring this message to people. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Unlikely Collaborators. Their mission is to untangle the stories that hold us back as individuals, communities, nations, and humanity at large. Using the Perception Box lens, they do this through storytelling, experiences, impact, investments, and scientific research. Unlikely collaborators, the only way forward is inward. Today we welcome Robert Waldinger to the podcast. Robert is a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and Zen priest. He is professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, where he directs the Harvard Study of Adult Development. His TEDx talk on this subject has received nearly 44 million views and is the ninth most watched TED talk of all time. He is the co-author of The Good Life with Dr. Mark Schultz. In this episode, I talked to Robert Waldinger about the secret to a happy life. Robert shares with us the recent findings of the Grand Study, which is the longest scientific study of happiness ever conducted. It's been ongoing for more than 80 years now and has had high-profile participants like U.S. President John F. Kennedy. In this episode, Robert and I get into the details of how they continue to conduct research and how to make sense of both the new and old data. Sure enough, what the study has found consistent is the power of connection. We also touch on the topics of psychodynamic therapy, defense mechanisms, attachment, and psychological research and its methodologies. This was a really awesome chat with someone who has led this legendary study we call this episode the secret to happiness, but there's actually a bunch of secrets and I don't want to spoil it for you. I want, I want some of the secrets to be a surprise for you. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Robert Waldinger. Hey, thanks for being on the psychology podcast today. How you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am a, a great admirer of uh, the work you've done and the research you're, you're, you're continuing to do. Can you kind of tell, start with uh, telling our audience a little bit about how you got into the position you currently have and what your background is? Sure. 
Um, I am a psychiatrist. I, I'm a Jew who grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, and um, <laughs> night, night. never knew any psychiatrists growing up, and uh, realized in medical school that psychiatry was the most interesting thing I had found. And so I trained actually as a psychoanalyst. And mm. so my specialty clinically is talk therapy. Mm. And then I wanted to learn to do research. And so I retooled in my 40s. I went back oh. and, and took statistics courses and did a bunch of things and um, got the, the wherewithal to do number crunching kind of research. And at that point, the third director of the study that I now direct, George Valiant, took me out to lunch one day and said, how would you like to inherit this study? Wow. So that's how I got here 20 years ago. I mean, that's incredible uh, that he did that. Is is George still alive? He is. Good. Good, because I've been planning on meeting him. I think he's in San Francisco. Or so I've been planning on meeting him for lunch. He's and, in, uh, <laughs> in the L.A. area. I just don't want to put that off too much longer. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, is he in the LA area now? Okay, I definitely need to reach out to him. So I'm a I'm a big George Violent fan and uh V A I L A N T. How do you pronounce his last name? He pronounces it Valiant. I always notice that, but there's no extra I in there. I so, know. <laughs> that always confuses me. But anyway, okay. Anyway, George is is such a legend and I uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of his work on defense mechanisms and I was and and you know, he's I know you uh, you emphasize connections, but I, I feel like it, when he was when he was running that show, he was emphasizing how certain defense mechanisms can really carry us through life and the way that we cope with adversity and the way we cope with things. So I'm wondering, you know, how much are you interested in 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 in, in the stuff that you uh, that George studied? I'm very interested. So as a psychoanalyst, I'm yeah. quite interested in defense mechanisms and how yeah. defense mechanisms really serve us pretty well, what what George referred to as the more mature defense mechanism. And some defense mechanisms don't work well at all. And we see that play out in people's lives in our study. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about the study. What a, what a whopper doozy this one is. What what is the I I'm still not so sure on the methodology of it. I'd love to know more about this mysterious methodology that that you use to to like what are you measuring? You know how do you measure it? Do you just do you rely on self reports? Basically, this is the the nerdy psychology podcast, so I want you to feel really comfortable talking about the details with me on this show. I'm a fellow psychologist. Great. Do you want me to explain the setup of the study? Like, yeah, if you could please explain the setup and then. You know, what are some of the main uh, measures that you've been tracking all these years? Sure. So the study was started in 1938, and it was started wow. with actually as two studies that didn't know about each other. One was a group of 268 Harvard College sophomores, 19-year-olds, uh, and they were gathered together for a study of normal young adult development from adolescence to early adulthood. You know, so of course, if you know, if you want to study normal development, you study all white men from Harvard, right? It's like so politically incorrect, but that's what they did at the time. And then the other study was started at Harvard Law School. 
by a law professor named Sheldon Gluck and his wife, Eleanor Gluck, who was a social worker. They were interested in juvenile delinquency, and they were particularly interested in how some kids born into really troubled and disadvantaged families managed to stay on good developmental paths. So mm. both groups were studies of thriving, but one very privileged, one very underprivileged. And then, you know, later on, we brought in spouses. Now we've brought in the children. So we have good gender balance now in the study, but it was originally all boys and young men. That is so interesting. And seemingly very disparate um, life experiences, you know, yeah. seemingly. Yeah. I guess it's possible that there were Harvard students who grew up in poverty and maybe were, were, were there any, were there any like overlap? <laughs> well, you know, there was a little, not so much poverty, but some of these guys were on mm. scholarship. Half of the young men had to work to pay at least part of their way through college. So they weren't all rich kids. Hmm. Harvard was by then trying to bring in people who were not wealthy, but you know, most of them were much more advantaged than the inner city. So there wasn't that much overlap. And the inner city sample was not just poor kids, but kids from families that were known on average to five social service agencies for mm. things like domestic violence, severe parental mental illness, physical illness, you know, very extreme poverty, those kinds of things. And then you had asked, so what's the methodology? What did we study? And we really study, have studied the big domains of life. So they are mental health, physical health, work life, including work satisfaction and who gets promoted, who gets fired and, and relationships. And then for the world, for the Harvard men, they were all of the age to go to world war two and almost all served in the war. The inner city men were on average nine years younger. So they were not old enough to go to the war, but we studied world war two experiences as well. Any of them still alive? Yep. Wow. They must uh, be old. <laughs> they're really old. They're all in their either late 90s or early 100s, and only about 40 out of 724 total. It's still amazing that 40 still exist. That's still yeah. amazing. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is um the, 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 the biggest parallel of your study that, that I am aware of is one that I talk about a lot, which is E. Paul Torrance's creativity study. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but if you're not, I'd love to teach you everything about it because they, he initiated that in the fifties and wow. they have been still following up uh, and they still release the reports on what were the biggest predictors of creativity. So you're focusing on happiness. So you're focusing on well, well-being, you know, E. Paul Torrance asked a very similar question, which is what, who, who naturally grows up to be uh, the most creative. Were there any metrics of um, creative productivity in your, in your study? You know, there weren't. I mean, so we have, of course, metrics of income. We know how much everybody made, you know, at regular intervals. We, we know about job promotions. We know about professions. But we really never studied that question of, you know, who's more creative, who's less creative. Yeah. Um, well, it, 
you know, I'd love to teach you all about the Paul Torn study and what they found. But, you know, obviously we're shining a spotlight on your amazing study today. So in terms of happiness, I mean, as you acknowledge in the book, which I love, happiness is is messy. <laughs> it is. It's not just feeling good. So when you look at, I assume that you attack this issue from multiple different things that you triangulate to try to figure out, you know, if they're happy someday in life. What are some of the main things that you try to triangulate? Because you say in your book, quote, the good life is a complicated life. You said yeah. that. <laughs> you I said, said that. I stand by it. It is. I know. Well, I stand by it too. I, I stand by your quote. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, what we did, I mean, we're kind of a, a, a textbook case in the history of science. So we've studied the same things for 85 years, but we bring in different methods as different methods come online. Mm. So we started out with regular questionnaires, surveys, mm. uh, and we did, you know, the, my, the original founders of the study did interviews uh, and detailed physical exams. And then every few years, we'd send them a questionnaire, every two years actually, and we got their medical records from their doctors. But then we began to audio tape them and then we began to videotape them. And now we draw blood for DNA and messenger RNA. And we put people into the MRI scanner and scan their brains. I mean, and we, we deliberately bring them into our lab and stress them out and then watch <laughs> how they recover from stress. Don't stress and, these 100 year olds out too much, my friend. Well, we were, we were, we actually brought in the kids and stressed them oh, out. Okay, I got you. We were all kind of baby boomers. So what we do is we bring in these different methods to try to look at well-being through different lenses. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, the, the originators of the study would never in a million years have imagined, A, that the study was still going on, and B, that you'd be, that such methods would even exist. Exactly. Imagine going to 1938 and showing them an fMRI machine. Exactly. <laughs> We're or, working or, in your brain. <laughs> or DNA, you know? Yeah, or I mean, DNA. Well, isn't that you know, you think about how much science, it's a whole other topic, but I'm fascinated with the history of science and, and even just the past 70 years, you know, what we, we've gone from a, a kind of a pre-scientific world to a, a ultra scientific world. Anyway, that's just, it's so fascinating. Well, what a, what a wonderful data set to inherit, so to speak, you uh, know, what a that, 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 that you can play around with that. You know, nerds like us can just jump in that. And, and so you're looking at, well, you're looking at lots of correlations. It, it seems like in terms of causa causative claims you're a little bit more limited there but what can you still say i mean it is a longitudinal study so that's beautiful you know that is that does make it possible to make some but you don't have a con good control group that's my concern so right yeah no it's really it's a really good concern it's an yeah. important question you know yeah. what do we so unless you do a tightly controlled experiment yeah you can't prove causation Right. right, right. And we can't tightly control it and say, okay, we're going to traumatize these children and we're going to not traumatize these children and then we're going to see how their lives play out. That's unethical, right? It's unethical right. to do most kinds of experiments on human beings. Absolutely. So what we do, as you're mentioning, is we follow people along and the we don't prove causation, but what we can get closer to 
is that kind of chicken and egg question, which comes first? And that's very helpful. So I'll give you an example. Quite a number of people in our study had the combination of depression and alcoholism. And when you ask people who have those problems, which came first, the alcohol or the depression, they will always tell you, oh, I got depressed and then I started to drink. But when you actually look and we followed them, the drinking comes first and then depression. So it's that kind of question that we can shed some light on. Uh, by following people year after year over a lot of time. That's true. That's true. But a lot of things came before their depression as well. Uh, just to play devil's advocate. Absolutely. <laughs> Not right. just a, you, you could have you could have said you can't make the same inference about like, oh, they, they got divorced before the depression, you know. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So what we do, and this is where, you know, to your point, we make sure that other studies have found the same things or are pointing in the same direction. So we never claim our study alone has found it. And so you have to believe it yeah. uh, because of this problem that there needs to be replication of scientific findings for us to have confidence that those findings are not just by chance. I gotcha. That's a good scientist in you. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Today's podcast is sponsored by Unlikely Collaborators. Their mission is to untangle the stories that hold us back as individuals, communities, nations, and humanity at large. Using the Perception Box lens, they do this through storytelling, experiences, impact, investments, and scientific research. Today's conversation with Robert really illustrates the importance of expanding the walls of our Perception Box. The Perception Box is the invisible mental box that we all live inside, and it can seriously hinder our ability to understand one another and to understand ourselves. In this episode, Robert reveals the main lessons he has learned from the longest ever study on human happiness. One of the major lessons is the importance of cultivating human connections for being able to weather the storms of life and to live a full, happy existence. This lesson is very much tied to our perception box. When our perception box walls are contracted, we see the world in a very narrow way, thanks to our own stories and self-judgments. These stories and self-judgments limit our potential to form deep connections with others. This is especially the case when we perceive someone as being very different from us, or we don't immediately feel a connection with a person. When we consciously and deliberately make the effort to see outside ourselves and our stories, at least temporarily, the walls of our perception box expand and we're able to encounter another human being with curiosity and openness. This can help us cultivate the most unlikely connections and can lead to some of the happiest moments in our lives. To find out more about Unlikely Collaborators and the Perception Box, go to unlikelycollaborators.com. You said you're a, you're a psychoanalyst by training. That is so interesting because I don't feel like psychoanalysts get a lot of get much love these days in the, in the especially in psychology you know feel no. in the psychology field we love we, we've like moved on we're CBT we're you know right, ACT right. we're um well they're all all the acronyms all the things um do you think do you feel like Freud is overrated or underrated I think Freud is both. <laughs> some, people, some people overrate him, very few actually, but many people underrate him. So yeah, he in psychology now, Freud is thought of as like old school, yeah. you know, almost witchcraft because he had some ideas that were really wrong, right? But he had so many fundamental ideas that were so right that now we forget they were largely made pop popular by Freud. So CBT was founded by a psychoanalyst. Hmm. Aaron Beck was an analyst. Yeah. You know, that, that there are many, and it, there's a great talk. I can't remember his name. He's a psychology professor at Yale, but he gives a talk to his undergraduate students saying, you're going to hear that Freud is, you know, is totally outdated, not, not useful at all. But let me just walk you through all these concepts that we couldn't live without in psychology mm. because of Freud. So I would say mostly he's underrated because we forget that a lot of what everything is based on had to do with Freud. Absolutely. Uh, I, th I think you're referring to Paul Bloom, by the way, at Yale. Oh, is it? I, I, I don't remember. I loved I, his talk, whoever I, he was. I think. I think. Don't quote me on that, but it sounds okay. like something Paul would say. Um, but um, well, first of all, so that's that's cool. But also, let's give some love to Anna Freud. Yeah, Anna Freud. The the I mean, that's talking about defense mechanisms. I think Anna yeah. did more than 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 uh, what Sigmund did. Yeah, and so let's give some love there. And also, I am such a big anyone who knows me knows I'm a such a big fan of Karen Horney. Oh yeah, and um, I have been trying to resurrect Karen Horney and uh, show some love. To uh, the amazing work that she's done on, um, uh, well, the neurotic trends. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with that that idea of hers. Yeah. 
it's beautiful. And yeah, so as a as a psychoanalyst, you know, do you do you think there's still a place in the modern day world for for psychoanalysis? We don't need to move completely on from that. Oh my yeah. gosh. I mean, yeah. it's it's really I I run the psychodynamic teaching program at the residency at my hospital at Massachusetts General Hospital and McLean Hospital. And it is a teaching program that basically teaches people to talk and listen hmm. rather than pulling out a manual. It teaches them, okay, um, how do you listen between the lines? How do you listen to, to what someone's not able to tell you? Hmm. Uh, but you can get hints of it. How do you listen to their train of thought? And from that, draw some inferences about what's most worrying them or what's most upsetting them. And then how can you reflect it back to them so that they feel heard, they feel understood. And that's very different from taking out a manual and say, today we're going to work on these four dysfunctional beliefs. It's, CBT has a lot of usefulness, don't get me wrong, but this kind of more open-ended exploratory model of psychotherapy, I find just incredibly powerful. And the research is, the research says it's just as powerful as CBT. They CBT says it's the only evidence-based practice, but that's not true. Oh, and boy. <laughs> You're like, those are fighting words. <laughs> they are fighting words, but the, the studies show that psychodynamic work is as effective and in some way, in some uh, studies longer lasting than the results of CBT for depression, for anxiety, for a whole variety of problems. Well, I know some CBT people where that that would be funny words, what you just said. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they do kind of have this attitude it, that there's no evidence base. There's no evidence base. And that's so not true. I know the, I know the evidence base well, actually, I, because I've, I've had to look into it and amass a lot of the papers about it. Do you feel like the close cousin of depth psychology, which is uh, of a, a psychoanalytic therapy, which I think is depth therapy? Do you think that's um, yeah. underrated? Because I think depth therapy that you know Carl Jung's ideas about about what therapy looked like, his vision for therapy, I think that's really underrated too these days. Do you agree? I do too. I yeah. do too. I think he had you know Freud. Freud wasn't an easy guy, right? And he had terrible rivalries with Jung. And Let's be Taft. honest. Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. you know, so a lot of um, Freudians and Jungians kind of don't talk to each other, which is, of course, silly. But Freud had some, I mean, uh, Jung had some very important ideas and really expanded on what Freud did in important ways. I think so as well. And then, you know, humanistic psychology doesn't get as much love as it should, in my opinion. Existential humanistic psychology. Yeah. Carl Rogers and all Irvin that. Irvin Yalom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, and he's been on my podcast. He's been on my podcast. Has he? He has. Yes, yes. Recently. Recently. Really? Yeah, I'll send you the episode. He's a legend. He's a legend. I uh, stuff. I yeah. really do. Have you met him? I only, I was uh, at a conference where he spoke, but I've mm. never met him. He's such a he's such a great guy. Um, his work has influenced me a lot. Um, okay, so I know we've strayed a little bit away from the details of your study, but I I just wanted to go into this realm of what sort of therapies do you think are the you know underrated underrated in this day and age? And let's yeah. tie it back to your study. So, do you view some of the major findings through a lens of psychodynamics? I'm just curious. 
and then obviously tell us some of the biggest findings. I know you've you've spoken us on many podcasts, but for our audience who maybe are not as aware of some of the most significant findings, please tell me them. And then and then how do you interpret them through what lens? Yeah, sure. I would say that the interpretation that that really what we do is we think of questions to ask in, that are informed in part by psychodynamic psychoanalytic theory. So we've studied security of attachment in our older adults and their partners. So we studied late life marriage and security of attachment in late life marriage nice. Amazing. and its links with brain functioning, all kinds of things. So my interest in psychodynamics informs the kinds of things I study and measure in the longitudinal study. And then there was another part you asked me, uh, well, yeah, well, you know, go through some of the most significant, you know, oh, yeah. findings. Yeah. So probably the biggest takeaway and the biggest surprise from this study was that the people who had the warmest connections with other people weren't just happier, but they stayed healthier, right? That was the surprise. Like how could relationships get into your body and how could warm relationships make it less likely that you'd get coronary artery disease or type two diabetes, right? Like how could that be a thing? And then a lot of other studies began to find the same thing. And we came to understand that this is a, a robust finding. So we've been studying the mechanisms. What do you think are, what are, okay. In terms of the measures you're referring to, give me a specific dependent measure uh, from a psych, from the psychological perspective, what sort of tests? Use tests of whatever, <laughs> whatever you're measuring psychologically. I just uh, I don't even I I don't have a list of all of the all the sort of tests that you've administered because it's like oh, sure. because I'm sure. trying to wrap my head around how this is something I'm trying to wrap my head around. And please explain to me in 1938 when the, when it was initiated, it's not like you had very well psychometric validated tests that you have today. So how are you able to look at continuity? Um, over these different time periods when a lot of these tests are recently developed. So that's one thing I'm trying to understand. That's a great question. So you're right. So we, you know, my predecessors asked about the same things, but they asked different questions. The wording of the questions was different. So then how do you compare the data you get in response to one question from the data you get 50 years later in response that's my to question. a question that's my about question. marriage, for example, you know, yeah. or happiness, whatever. So one of the things that, that you can do is to look at what are called latent constructs. Yeah. So let's say we ask about marriage in five different ways over 40 years, right? But you can see, okay, what's the latent construct, the underlying thing we're trying to measure each time we ask the question. And then there are statistical methods for converting the data you get in response to each different question into something that's comparable, where you kind of put them on a level playing field. And so what you do is you identify a latent construct and you then harmonize different measures so that then you've got it's not exactly repeated measures, but it's, it's measures of roughly the same thing over time. So that's what we do. And there are some very well-developed techniques for doing that now. Absolutely. No, that makes complete sense to me. I didn't even know you did that. So it's, yeah. So yeah, there's, I mean, you can swim in the sea of latent variable analysis and 
and and and and and uh, um, even you I, you could test some of the older items from the 30s now and see how it loads on the factor yeah, the, of the new factor. So I get it, and I get it now. I mean, I had so many of these unanswered questions that I don't get from your other interviews because they're with like people who don't know anything about psychology. <laughs> so I, I, I'm left with the more detail-oriented questions. So, okay, now I get it. That's that's really cool. Um, I'm and then to get to talk to you about this because nobody else asks. <laughs> that's what we do here on this show. That's what we do here. Okay, that's cool. And so do find that some of the uh, kinds of questions they asked um, that maybe like are outdated in terms of like, you know, maybe not even politically correct, like maybe it focused on the male gender, right? You know, because uh, and stuff. Do you find it still loads uh, on on uh, some some uh, some more global factors when you include other kinds of items that are more modern day? Yeah. Yeah, you can. You can see that, oh, actually, this this loads really well. This this coheres really well with some of the other measures, some of the other questions we asked. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's surprising how well they cohere and Amazing. surprising how well they predict things. So actually, George Valiant measured defense mechanisms, and he did it in this really creative way. He identified vignettes, stories people told about a challenging time, a relationship or a job challenge or something. He'd take those stories and have people code them and say, okay, what defense mechanisms were being used here? And then we have, so we have a kind of measure of what, what is someone's primary motive defending themselves? against challenge, against anxiety? What are their top two defense mechanisms? And then what we find is that the maturity of their defenses, how mature they are, is so predictive of so many things later on. And so this kind of rough and ready uh, measure that we created by coding text, by coding stories, turns out to be hugely predictive of health of well-being, of uh, work functioning, right? So oh. it's pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of my favorite products that helps supports my mind and energy. On the Psychology Podcast, we often highlight different forms of mind-body connection, and nootropics are a powerful example. Nutritional science supporting or not supporting brain health can have a lot to do with our drive to accomplish the richness of our experiences, and the thriving presence from peak mental wellness. Neurohacker Collective is a science team founded in 2015 that has advanced the frontier of nutritionally supporting brain health. Personally, I've known the folks at Neurohacker Collective for years now, and they really are thoughtful about what they put into their products, always trying to be as science-informed as possible. They were specifically founded with a neuroscience specialty in the field of supplementation, and quality of mind is that effort. Qualia Mind blends 28 of the most research-backed nootropics on Earth into the most comprehensive formula to support short- and long-term brain health, promote mental energy, and get things done on a daily basis from a place of thriving. Qualia Mind is vegan, non-GMO, gluten-free, and backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee. Qualia Mind's impact on my own mindset, productivity, energy, and inspiration have been really, really profound. To try Qualia Mind up to 50% off, Go to neurohacker.com slash psychology and enter code psychology at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's quality of mind code psychology at neurohacker.com slash psychology for an additional 15% off. 
I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm obsessed with modern-day measurement of defense mechanisms. It's been a hobby of mine. I want to send you a paper um, where we try to uh, do a big uh, factor analysis of all different kind of defense mechanism items from different scales to kind of see what the essential features are. I'm I'm just trying to Google Google my paper right now because I'll tell you some of the major factors, and then I want to know how it maps onto which factors you found are most important for you said two there's two biggies uh so i want to like keep keep the drum roll going for a second you mean for defenses or for did you say there you found top two defense mechanisms did i understand that correctly oh no no i was giving an example like what are this but we did find what my co-author mark schultz and i re Mm -hmm. re reorganized George's defense mechanism ratings into two big categories, which were defenses that engaged the world and defenses that avoided the world, avoided reality. So it was avoidance versus engagement. And what we found was that people who were higher on the engagement dimension were much more successful in their lives than the people who were higher on the avoidance dimension. That's huge. That's a huge finding. Huge There's finding. a paper called Facing the Music or Burying Our Heads in the Sand. That's the Whoa. title of the paper. Oh, 
Oh my god, I'm gonna I, I, I gotta chill um, because I've been I love that finding I've been really fascinated with the research in the ACT approach on experiential avoidance and how yeah. that underlies so many forms of psychopathology and um, so that I, I want to find that paper um, that is uh, really in line with a lot of other research so uh, in, you found those two categories engagement and avoidance so we found four fat we found um, four factors let me just read the factors to you we did like a we administered so many of these defense items um, and these are the four factors one was maladaptive action patterns is what we labeled this obviously with, with the subjective what you label a factor but that we that's what we yeah. labeled it and they were the kind of items like um, they included suppression um, i'm unable to keep a problem out of my mind until i have a time to deal with it rationalization like i'm unable to find good reasons for everything i do or I'm unable to keep a problem out of my mind. These are, I'm reverse coding it on the spot. I'm often told I don't show my feelings. So so that actually seems to have to do with avoidance. Yeah. I think that maladaptive action patterns. I actually, yeah. as I'm reading these items, I'm like, that seems to be avoidance, suppression. The second one we found was an image distortion factor, uh, which uh, uh, tended to have to do with uh, changing oneself. I... um. Like I, I am the greatest. That was nar- a very narcissistic sort of, you know, ways yeah. of dealing. I ignore dangers if I were Superman. Sometimes I think I'm an angel. And other times I think I'm a devil. Something to do with distortion of one's self-image. Yeah. Um, third, we found were adaptive, very adaptive ones. Like, uh, you know, like using humor, using creativity, um, anticipation. And then a fourth one was, was more altruism. So I feel good when I know someone, when I, when I know, I always feel that someone I know is like a guardian angel. Um, if I were in a crisis, I would seek out another person who had the same problem. So ways of dealing and coping through altruism. Anyway, that was our four factors. I'm, I was just, I was just, my, my nerdy question is, do you, do you see any of those four playing a role in, in what you found? Well, we do. It's a, it's a different way to, you're, you're I using know. buckets, but it's the same coping mechanisms, Right. And yeah. so like, it's just, it, it, and as you know, there's like, there's no standard list of defense mechanisms, right? Because there's so, label it so many ways. And so what you're trying to get at is four dimensions. We had divided things into two dimensions, but we're all looking at the same I know styles of coping. And so I'd love to see what you did. That would be great. We correlated it with uh, narcissism and, uh, mm. and, 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 Okay. Well, this is this is wonderful. Um, and how does that? How do those findings, um, avoidance approach? How does it link to the oft-cited finding about the importance of human connection? How do how do you can you relate those things to each other at all? Like, do people who have yeah. more avoidance do they avoid relationships that would be beneficial for them? That sort of thing. Right. Yeah. And they often avoid dealing with problems in relationships. Oh, right? yeah. There you go. Attachment style. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so we find that avoidance doesn't work well interpersonally, right? Mm. It also doesn't work well in other things too, like dealing with a health crisis, right? Yeah. But certainly interpersonally, it's not a good, not a good thing. Why do you emphasize connection so much in, uh, when you talk about this, I mean, your, your awesome Ted talk, um, emphasize connection. Your the book does a lot. Are, is that like the thing you're most excited about finding uh, consistently? Or I'm just well, curious. Well, because 
because the findings are so powerful, right? That's the most powerful like, finding. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. also taking care of your health, which, yeah. which matters hugely. So, but, the, but I think what we have found is that, that the, the benefits of connection and the hazards of loneliness and disconnection are so powerful that the reason why we're excited about it is we feel like we really want to bring this message to people. Yeah. Um, yeah. That in some ways, you know, it's not rocket science. In some ways, it's stating something that we all deep down know, but it's just bringing it out front and center and saying, look, there's all this science behind it. It's so important. And th there is so much science behind it for everyone, you know, that uh, almost every study you find, you tend to find loneliness is predicts a lot of uh, negative, uh, maladaptive things in life. Again, uh, I just want to come back to the control question, the control uh, uh, group question. What would that even, in this kind of study, what would that even look like? Like, you know, obviously the two groups, the, the Harvard group and the juvenile group are very different from each other. Do you compare them to each other ever? Do you? Okay. So you can Absolutely. do cross sample comparisons. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. That's great. <laughs> what are some yeah. findings? What are some findings from uh, looking at um, the benefits? Because there's got to be benefits of being going to Harvard <laughs> and having that social support system, having people believe in you versus going through and having people kind of expect, you know, negative outcomes. Yeah. And, and actually the, the most powerful finding we have on that regard, comparing them is that the, the Harvard guys live on average 10 years longer than the inner city guys. Wow. So privilege wow. matters a lot, yeah. but 25 of the inner city guys, 25 out of 456 went to college and graduated from college. And those 25 lived just as long on average as the Harvard guys. So what we find is, and we don't think it's because of their college diplomas, but we think that the, the support they got, first of all, to get to college and to stay in college, that was huge and probably had other effects on their lives and their longevity. And then also the education, the value of the education, because, you know, the, the big public health messages about the dangers of smoking, the dangers of addiction, the of alcoholism, all that really began to emerge in the 60s, 70s, 80s, come into the public health consciousness. And we think that the Harvard guys, because of their education and reading more widely, probably got those messages sooner and were able to implement them sooner than the inner city guys. So we think that education probably had something to do with this longevity benefit. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of the, obviously most of the, the participants are, it's anonymous. We don't know who they are, but uh, it was leaked, you know, that JFK was one of the study participants. And so you have like, you know, in some closet somewhere, you have a lot of information about JFK and 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 things we probably don't even know, you know, about him that uh, you know, and and his life. So I'm not going to ask you to tell me any secrets, but tell me some secrets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, of course, and you know, I couldn't, I couldn't I tell you. I know, but, but tell me. <laughs> yeah, we don't, yeah. we don't have the information about JFK. 
So when he was running for Senate from the state of Massachusetts, his advisors thought it was best that he withdraw from the study. Oh, I and see. And that they remove his records because they felt that having a bunch of private personal information in a in an office somewhere, even though it was locked up, probably wasn't a good idea. So those records are now in the Kennedy Library. Oh, I see. Okay. At the University of Massachusetts. Okay. I see. And that's open to the public? Yeah. You oh, can I go see. look. I see. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's cool. Well, so there obviously there are a lot of successful individuals in the Harvard thing. What about the inner city guys? Um, I like how you refer to them as the inner city guys. So I'm going to refer to them as that as well. Yeah. Anyone there, you don't have to give me names, obviously, but anyone who became wildly successful from that cohort? Yes, there were. There were people who became, you know, business owners, quite successful, maybe millionaires mm. at a time when a million dollars was a huge amount of money, that kind of thing. So some of them I think one had a shop that made the first Toll House chocolate chip cookies, you know, oh, and uh, so oh. very cool. Now, I will tell you our, our, the opposite of the success story, which I only found out when it was published in the Boston Globe, that in the delinquent sample, which we did not follow, the delinquent boys from that study, one of them was the Boston Strangler. Wow. We um we're allowed to know that. We're allowed yeah. to know that because it was published in the in the oh. Boston Globe not that long ago. Wow. And well he well I don't know what lessons to learn from about happiness from him was he cuz like what if you found out that he was the Boston Strangler but he was happy, you know? Like what lesson do we learn from that? No lesson. So Well, we didn't know, yeah. we we didn't follow him. You so didn't I follow don't, it up. You no. didn't follow that up. Yeah, no, I know that's like um I know that got dark really quick, but I'm just my my point here is that uh <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that uh I often feel like it, when we talk about happiness, I always try to emphasize to people, you know, it's it's how you acquire that happiness that matters sometimes yeah. even more. You know, Eric Fromm has this um uh wonderful book called The Sane Society, um which is one of my favorite books, and it I think it's so important to recognize that being sane in an insane society is is actually a marker of insanity. You know, being happy if everyone else around you is dying or suffering, you know, do we just want to reward and say, look, let's do whatever this person's doing because they're happy? No, you know? So just zooming out to a broader context and not just looking at the factors that predict happiness, but look to see that those factors are increasing the net positive on the world, I think is important too. Do you agree? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The Boston Strangler is just an example that I was like, because it's like, that'd be cheeky, not cheeky, but like, you know, you find, well, it turns out Boston Strangler scores are the happiest of them all. Well, it's not like we then want to like do whatever he did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we know that sociopaths yeah. are often impervious to, right. uh, to what other people think of them, whatever, you know, and, and so they seem untouchable in terms of their happiness. Yeah. I am so excited to announce that registrations are now open for our self-actualization coaching intensive. While the coaching industry has taken great strides over the years toward integrating more evidence-based coaching approaches, there is still a lot of work to be done. Many coach training programs still lack strong foundations in science, 
and do little to incorporate research-informed tools, methodologies, or approaches for helping clients thrive. For 20 years, I've dedicated my career to rigorously testing ways to unlock creativity, intelligence, and our potential as human beings. Now, for the first time ever, I have compiled some of my greatest insights to bring the new science of self-actualization to the field of professional coaching. This immersive three-day learning experience will introduce you to self-actualization coaching, an approach intended to enhance your coaching practice by offering you evidence-based tools and insights from my research that will equip you to more effectively help your clients unlock their unique potential. Don't miss out on this unique opportunity. Join us and take your coaching practice to the next level. Go to sacoaching.org. That's sacoaching.org. I look forward to welcoming you in December. In terms of like relationship, the power, because I'm right there with you on the power of relationships. Um, and I love that you're bringing that so foremost to the culture. Um, your work has done a lot to bring that to the foremost. I love that. Um, there's just, um, there's obviously a lot of nuance there, like being a single, like in terms of romantic relationships, do you find, like, I feel like a good marriage is like one of the best, if not the best predictors of happiness, but a bad, but a bad marriage is one of the best predictors of depression. So yeah. it's not just like get married. It's like, no, no, get married to the right person, you know? And, yeah. And figure out how to work on relationships to make them better. Now, yeah. not every relationship is workable. And so, you know, as we know, many people split up and some couples really should split up. Some friendships should split up. Yeah. But I think one of the things we, we try to emphasize in the book is that it's really important to see what's possible in a relationship, to see if it's possible to work through difficulties, because often it makes a relationship stronger. Um, and once you've invested in a relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship, there's huge cost to blowing it off, to jettisoning it. Jettisoning it. So you, we want to be sure that we've done what we can to see if differences can be worked out. Oh, I completely agree with that. I'm writing down some of this stuff because I feel like you're giving me good quotes for my next book. <laughs> um, no, I, I think you're saying, well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely, yeah. And of course, I'm going to ask your permission before I include it in my of book. But yeah, you're, you're giving you my permission. <laughs> you're giving you're giving me good you're you're saying such good things that I really agree with. Um, uh, just getting back to the nitty gritty details of what you're looking at. Do you have measures of meaning? Do you have measure? You know, because like modern day well being scales exist, right? That incorporate uh, lots of different things. Purpose? Do you feel like a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning in your life? Do you feel like you matter? Do you feel like you're not just connection, but other things? And I'm wondering, are you using any of these modern day scales? And yeah, we do. Like we use Ed Diener's oh, okay. uh, satisfaction with life scale. Okay. Uh, we use some more expanded satisfaction with life scales, and they include questions like, you know, do you feel like you have meaning and purpose or what gets you up and do you know what gets you up in the morning and that kind of thing. Uh, so we do. And we use those scales because they are tested. They are tried mm -hmm. and true. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. George Valiant and his predecessors made up a lot of their own questions and they were great at it. It's just that they didn't do psychometric testing on them. And so now what we've done is to bring in measures that have been tested. And that way it allows us to compare our data to other studies that are using the same measures. Absolutely. Um, because do you ever find that some things, 
that predict happiness maybe don't predict meaning and vice versa. You know, something like when I say happiness, I mean just life satisfaction. Scale one to ten, how satisfied with you are your life? How what's the ratio of your positive to your negative emotions? That's really just how the life satisfaction questionnaire is. But do you find there maybe there's some things that over the years have predicted a greater sense of meaning and purpose, but may show lower happiness scores? Um, do you look at that differentiation at all? We don't, but I think you probably know of Carol Riff's work where she Absolutely. differentiates, yeah. you know, hedonic well-being from eudaimonic yeah. being. Love and her we work. Know, you know, there are people who prioritize meaning and purpose, and they'll defer gratification in order to get that. And there are other people who say, no, I really want to party now, and I want to have a good time right now. And and so we know that people differ a lot in the extent to which they prioritize the being happy now versus the deferred gratification kind of happiness. Yeah, yeah. I was just curious if you looked at that different differentiation at all. Um, and then, of course, the creativity question is so interesting to me. Success, have you looked at like the role of self-esteem or the role of feeling like you are competent in your life um, and, and how much that matters. Have you, have you looked at that at all? Well, we have, you know, we haven't, hmm, I would say we have not done really rigorous measurement of self-esteem. Uh, I wish we had, mm. uh, cause it's something that I feel is so vital yeah. we haven't done that, but we know people would mention things that reflected high or low self-esteem a lot in their responses to us. Um, but, but, you know, have we done a particular defined study of self-esteem? No. Fair enough. Um, I mean, you can't measure everything in the world. (laughs) You know, when, when people like you ask really good questions, Oh, I wish we'd answer, we had asked that. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, it's, it's still one of the best, uh, most unique studies in the history of psychology don't feel, you know, apologetic at all that you didn't, you know, didn't, you didn't include every possible measure in the world. The original architects of the study, did they ever plan for this to be a longitudinal study or it just turned out to be that way? Well, no, I think they planned to follow people maybe five to 10 years, Okay, okay, but nobody, nobody ever dreamed it would go on this long. It's a, a really remarkable uh, achievement, and uh, that you're part of a you're part of a remarkable lineage. <laughs> you know, yeah, I feel uh, really lucky, really yeah, lucky. Yeah, well, you're worthy. You're worthy. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's the psychologist in me. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, with the connection thing, what are some of the? Tell me some more of the benefits of connection that you found. You know, people who were able to have more connection though, as we're also able to what in their lives? Like what, what, tell me more of the correlations or associations you see there. Well, they weathered hard times better, right? Mm. Because relationships help us get through the hard times. Mm. They were often more successful at work. And, you know, we know this from lots of work now that says, you know, emotional intelligence, people skills, being yeah. good with people often matters more than IQ. Yeah. Uh, for how well you do at work. So there are a lot of things we found about connection. They just, ha- it has a lot of positive benefits and a lot of benefits in terms of weathering the storms of life. And uh, remind me how you measured uh, the presence of high quality connections 
you know, I, that's a, that, that's a phrase, you know, in the psychological culture, high quality connections, which is different than like the need for belonging. You know, you can have, you can feel a sense of belonging, but not feel yeah. like there's a mutual intimate back and forth. So I'm just curious, how, how do you measure the presence of lots of high quality connections in one's life? Well, so in different ways, I mean, we'd ask people about friends. How often do you see friends? What do you do with your friends? I see. I see. Uh, that kind of thing. And we would also talk about being satisfied. How satisfied are you with friends? How satisfied are you with your spouse? Uh, mm. How good is your sex life? I mean, there were a lot of things we asked that, that tried to get at quality. It's great. It's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. Well, I feel like I've, uh, don't worry. I think I've exhausted my questions for today. <laughs> I, I, I look at you every time I start to ask a question. I think you feel like you're in the hot seat or something like, uh, you know, oh, no. and where were Roger? Where were you on June 2nd, 1972? <laughs> but um, uh, I, I really uh, honor and treasure this opportunity to be able to ask you those questions. Um, I've, I've wondered them for a while and I, and I hope uh, our listeners really, you know, get the main points of, of this, of this study. Um, they don't get lost in the factor analysis discussion, but they <laughs> they they understand oh, yeah. the, the the main the main points here. Any any other sort of main you know sort of points you want to make about what you've gleaned from this enormous data set? Well, I think that you know we we talk about what we've called social fitness, and it's really just a an analogy with physical fitness. The idea that the people in our study who were best at this were the people who were active you know, who would make sure they stayed in touch with friends, who would make plans with friends, who who were proactive, who didn't just wait for relationships to take care of themselves because they didn't always take care of themselves. Some really good relationships would just wither away and die. And so I think that's an important message that's worth getting out there. Yeah, that's a beautiful uh, place to maybe end. As, as yeah. I get older, I feel like I hold on uh you know, more tightly to, uh, my most meaningful relationships, you know, trying yeah. to make it's investment. You make investments yeah. easy, you know, calling mom, <laughs> you know, you know, staying in touch more regularly, calling your friend if who's on another coast or whatever. And the, these right. are investments. Um, and your research shows in a lot of ways that these individuals who made these investments as young as possible, it, it lived longer and, you know, and, yeah. and lots of really great things. Dr. Waldinger, uh, such an honor to have you on my podcast today, and uh, I wish you all the best with the continuing studies of it. <laughs> Great. This was a pleasure. I really enjoyed oh, talking you. with you. Thanks a Thank lot. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 